Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Hey, uh, we've been preaching line by line through the Lord's Prayer through Term 1, and we're at the last line. So last week of the series, I trust it's been encouraging for you. I hope for many of you it's actually fueled something in your prayer life, prompted something for you that's uh, just given you a new passion just to speak with God and just to lean into that space. So uh, great to get to the end. It's also the end of 21 days of prayer and fasting for us as a church. I know many of you have interacted with that in different ways and trust that you've experienced uh, just some breakthrough in your life or just a real sense of God. Uh, God's presence. God is always present with us. I think sometimes the only thing that changes is our perspective and uh, our lean in. So I hope that's been encouraging for you. So we're at the last line, which I'm going to talk about in the moment, is the last line, but isn't the last line. If you read your Bible, you've been following along in your New Testament, you might have been reading it thinking, well, where is this for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory bit? Because it's not in my Bible. Unless you're reading from an old King James version of the Bible and there you'll find it. But for most of us, it's not in the modern translations because when they go back to the most original Greek text that they found of the early scriptures, this line isn't in there. But I'm going to tell you all about that a little bit later, so you're going to have to hold on for that. But the first question I want to ask as we come into landing of this series is this. Who do people say that I am? That's a question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do people say that I am? The context of where Jesus asked this is really important. He actually asked that question at a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was probably the most northern journey that Jesus does with his disciples. And you can go and look up a map of ancient Israel uh, at some point and see where Caesarea Philippi is. It's now known as, I think, modern-day Banius, or uh, it's got a, a modern-day name, but I think it's more ruins than anything these days. But Caesarea Philippi was a pagan center. Obviously, in the name of it, you can see that it had a shout-out to the Roman Empire and to the Caesars. And it was a place where there was all kind of messed up things happening. This was not a place that you take the youth group on a night out or the young adults group on a mission trip. This was messed up. They worshipped the pagan god Pan. And uh, there was a temple, there was a grotto where like a natural amphitheater where uh, the river just used to flow into this great opening that um, people used to call the gates of Hades because they thought it was the gates to the underworld. If you know the story, you'd know there's some context here. But in this place, they worshipped the god Pan who was like a goat-like figure and all the worship was messed up. Like it was just debaucherous on every level. And Jesus decides to take his disciples, good Jewish boys, for a road trip to Caesarea Philippi, where they would have been confronted not just with the worship of pagan gods, but there was also a temple to the emperor Augustus that was built there. And so it was confronting on every level. This place was not the place that you went for a weekend away. It was full on. And it's in this space that Jesus says to his disciples, and particularly Matthew 16 tells us of an interaction between he and the apostle Peter. Jesus says to them, who do people say that I am? And I want to ask that question this morning. Who do people say 
that I am. You see, in our world, that, that question is answered in a myriad of ways. There's a lot of people that would say Jesus is a good bloke. Jesus is a good bloke. Some of you have read a book called Jesus the Bloke. It tells you that he's more than just a good bloke. If you haven't read it, let me recommend it to you. But Jesus is a good bloke. In 2016, McCrindle Research, which is an Australian researching company, looked at uh, the attitude of Australians to the church and Christian faith. And it showed that more than half of all Australians know either nothing or very little about the life of Jesus. Most of them have heard of Jesus, but not many or less than half could tell you much about his life. But then when they went to the comment section, anecdotally, it tells a different story because it says that most people actually have a positive view of Jesus. The people don't dislike Jesus as a general rule. There's certainly pockets that do, but most people have a positive view of Jesus. They're affirming of him. They would say Jesus is a good bloke. There was a song by the band Live many years ago that said this, heard a lot of talk about this Jesus, a man of love and a man of strength. But what a man was 2,000 years ago means nothing to me today. You see, the problem is if Jesus is just a good bloke, that's all he is to you. doesn't actually have any implication to your life. You see, some people, when asked the question, who do you say that I am, wouldn't just say Jesus is a good bloke. They might say more than that. They've done some study and they'd say Jesus is actually an important historical figure. If you study history, if you study parts of ancient history, the Christian faith is, uh, has an important part in the history of mankind. More than that, Jesus was a central figure. Therefore, Jesus is an important historical figure. 53% of people in that study said that Jesus had a very high importance to the history and culture of humanity. But when you drill a little bit further, only 31% said that they believed he was vitally important for them personally. You see, many people think that Jesus is an important figure in history, but again, doesn't have any implication for them to today. Some people would go on and say he's not just an important historical figure. Jesus is actually listed amongst the great teachers alongside Aristotle and Gandhi or Confucius or Mrs. Bell, the great prep teachers here at Livingston, or even Peter Tabici, the science teacher and Franciscan friar at the Carrico Mixed Day Secondary School, who in 2019 won the Global Teaching Prize. I don't know how you nominate someone for that, but apparently he won a million bucks. Someone's got to nominate someone here for that. Get on to it. Like, jump on the website and work out how you can Pick on one of your teachers and tell them they're one of the great teachers because there's a good cash prize at the end of it. And I reckon if you nominate, you've got a little bit of a say in the cut of that goodness, don't you reckon? So get on to it, church. But people would put Jesus in that same list. They'd say, Jesus is a great teacher. He gave us some of the greatest moral teachings at the time. I mean, they were revolutionary. Jesus said, love your neighbor. Jesus said, more than that, love your enemies. I mean, these were revolutionary in both their thinking and their application. But if Jesus is just a great teacher, we all know that teachers are only guides. They help us learn things, see things, and apply things. Sometimes we grab a snapshot of what we've been taught. Some of us have put a quote from some of the great teachers of history on our wall. But if they're just a great teacher, they're just a guide and don't have an implication on our life. 
You know, there'd be a lot of other people that in answering the question of who did people say that I am would say that Jesus is just a myth. Jesus is just someone that has been created by a group of people that needed to ground their religion in something. And even though every shred of historical evidence points to a person, Jesus, some people have never looked at that and just want to claim that Jesus is a myth. You know, the figure in the McCrindle research that fascinated me the most was that one in 29 Australians have never heard of Jesus. Never heard of Jesus. I mean, that's fascinating because our culture's got a natural pastime of using his name in sentences when they want to curse something. So for one in 29 people to have never heard of Jesus is incredibly fascinating. You see, people answer that question, who do people say that I am, in a whole range of different ways. And maybe some of the ways that I've just outlined are the ways that you would answer that question. But you see, Jesus said to his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, who do people say that I am? And they, they started listing some of the great prophets. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're John the Baptist. But then Jesus turns the screws a little bit and he turns to Peter and he says, okay, I don't care now about the noise. Who do you say that I am? And the most important question that you're going to answer when it comes to Christian faith is that question. Who do you say that I am? Jesus wants to ask you the same question. Who do you say that I am. Peter in Matthew 16, 16 replies this, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In his first sermon in the book of Acts chapter two, Peter goes on to expand that. He says, God made Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What's the word Messiah mean? Messiah is the Hebrew rendering of the Greek word for Christ. So Christ and Messiah, same word, different languages. But what does Messiah mean? It means the anointed one. And what does a Lord mean? When Peter says he's both Messiah and Lord, Peter wants to say Jesus is the anointed one. He's the one that was promised. He's the one that was spoken of by the prophets. It was always going to come. But more than that, he is Lord. And to declare someone as Lord is to declare them as the master, as the supreme authority, as the one who's in charge, as the one who every knee should bow before. And so for generations, the thing that transforms people's lives, the thing that transforms churches and transforms communities is that when people answer the question, who do you say I am, by declaring the very profound statement that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You see, who we declare Jesus to be is going to determine everything about the way that we choose to live our lives. If Jesus is Lord, it changes the way we worship. If Jesus is Lord, it changes the priorities that we set and what becomes most important for us and for our families. If Jesus is Lord, the way we allocate and use our resources, our time, our talents, and our treasures. If Jesus is Lord, it changes the way we think of and plan for the future. If Jesus is Lord, it changes the way we treat others. And it decides the things that we're going to compromise on and the things that we never will. See, if Jesus is just a good bloke to you, there's no implication on your life. Cheer him on as a good bloke. If Jesus is a great teacher, you're going to apply some of his wisdom when appropriate, maybe make a nice tapestry or two to stick on your wall or some of his greatest sayings, but it's not going to have a great implication for your life. If Jesus is just a significant figure, 
We're going to choose to learn and apply some things from his life, but leave behind that which we don't care about. But if Jesus is Lord, the call is that we choose to surrender our life to his purposes. You see, the declaration of who Jesus is has significant implication for your life. Let's rewind a little bit back to the Old Testament and uh, the book of Daniel. And one of the stories that if you've grown up in the church and you went to kids' church or Sunday school or kids' own or whatever it was called when you were young, I used to go to uh, Sunday school and then it became BMW, Beginner's Morning Worship. I don't know what it was called in your church, but anyone that spent any time in their growing up years in the church has probably at some point encountered the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Who's familiar with that? Who did that in Sunday school? It's just a little show of hands. Well, there are a lot of you. Down in the lion's den, it's like Noah's ark. There's animals, we can color them in. It's a great kid's story. But once again, when we actually read what happens, it's a pretty devastating kid's story, isn't it? Like people get eaten by lions. It's not that nice. But Daniel is a man who has found himself with his friends and his uh, fellow Jews in exile in Babylon. And Daniel chapter 6 tells us that Darius the Mede has become king in Babylon. And Daniel is there in exile, but he's excelling in life. Daniel's doing well. He is a man of faith. Daniel is excelling himself as part of public life and is actually finding a fairly quick ascension up the ladder of leadership as part of King Darius the Medes team. And Daniel 6 verse 3 says this. Listen to these words. Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. I just want to say, young people here today, if you want a great model of what it looks like to live as a foreigner in a strange land, as someone that wants to live out the the way of Jesus in a culture that is against you, read the story of Daniel. Because Daniel did that. He was faithful to God in every way, and he excelled. Sometimes we think we're going to miss out if we actually live Jesus' way. But Daniel lived the way God called him to live, and he excelled. He he was seen to even be set apart from those that the king had pulled closest to him. So Daniel ascends the ladder and the king plans to set him over the whole kingdom, like the two I see of the kingdom. The scripture then tells us that at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. You see, when you start actually becoming prominent in your faith, people are going to start digging to find ways to bring you down. But they couldn't find anything for Daniel. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless he has something to do with the law of his God. See, the story of Daniel is a story of jealousy It's a story of political maneuvering, people that wanted to get into the seat that people saw Daniel was being moved into. And so those who also desired power look for a way to trap Daniel and they decide there's only one because there's nothing they can find when they start digging around. And so they're going to ask him to choose who his allegiance is with. In other words, who will Daniel declare is Lord? Verse 7, the royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown 
into the lion's den. So they can't find any corruption in Daniel, so they decide, well, let's go after something that clearly matters to him. Let's go after his prayer life. They go to King Darius, and they start to just stoke the ego of the king. Now, all of us have got an ego. All of us sometimes, you know, have to wrestle, and especially those of you that are in any leadership position or have anyone that follows you, there's always going to be a wrestle in your spirit about the desire for power and how you get to exercise that. And these administrators knew that if you just kind of stroke the ego of the king for long enough and say, we actually think, king, that you're so wonderful, that everybody should actually be showing their allegiance to you by praying to nobody else but you. They almost set the king up with divine qualities. And the king, King Darius, even though he loves Daniel, isn't thinking about Daniel at this moment. He's thinking about himself. And he starts to puff his chest out and think, well, yeah, I am pretty decent. And all these wonderful people in my council think that everyone should pray for me. So, so be it. Issues an edict across the land that anybody who prays to any God or human being over the next month shall be thrown into a den of lions. So they set up the trap for Daniel. It's the trap of prayer. Verse 10, this is Daniel's response. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he has done before. And Daniel, everyone in the land, the king has decreed that you shall not pray. And Daniel says, okay, goes home. Guess what Daniel does? Gets on his knees and he starts praying. In that very moment, Daniel declares who is Lord, who has his allegiance. And when the culture, when the powers and the authorities of the day that Daniel lived in asked him to bow the knee, Daniel says, I won't bow the knee to anything else but the God who I've declared as Lord. Well, I won't read it all. It's a long scripture, but essentially they're watching to see what Daniel does. They catch him praying. They go to the king and they say, King, you've, you've issued this into law. This is legislation now. You've got to do something with it. We found Daniel, your advisor, praying. And the king, it says, is kind of overwhelmed with grief because he really loves Daniel and loves what he's doing and recognizes at this point that he's been trapped But he's issued the decree. It's been legislated. And so it says that Daniel is thrown into a den of hungry lions. The king is so overcome with anxiety that he doesn't sleep that night and next morning races to the den of lions to see what's happened. And there's Daniel alive with the lions lying around him. And King Darius recognizes the deception of the other administrators. And then it gets messy because he decrees they get thrown to the lions and the lions were hungry after all. And that's all we need to say about that. But listen to what King Darius says. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and people of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and revere the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. See, the story of Daniel comes in before the time of Jesus. But the confrontation that Daniel faced was the same decision that Jesus asked of Peter at Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? And he bowed his knee to God Almighty and declared his allegiance, declared who was Lord. You see, when we're confronted with a culture that asked to bow the knee, Daniel doesn't. 
See, many of us have grown up in a world where the only affront to our faith has largely been indifference, maybe a little bit of ridicule, maybe some lack of interest, maybe the who cares factor. Most of us that have grown up in this culture, in this world, haven't had the threat of a den of lions hanging over our head if we choose to pray. But as I said at the start of the series, sometimes the greatest threat to our faith is apathy because we haven't been forced onto our knees and so we just get comfortable that it's always there. We don't need to do it. But Daniel is now confronted with a culture that says, culture is demanding something of you, Daniel. And the demand is that you bow your knee and declare that the Lord of this culture is your Lord. And Daniel says, I will not bow my knee to any other. I bow my knee in the allegiance to the one that I've declared is Lord. I wonder how it's going to go for us when suddenly the world around us builds up edicts and pressures that confront our faith and force us to declare allegiance when the consequences are very real and very impacting. And if you haven't perceived that it's beginning to happen in our culture, what an incredible testament to Daniel's life that the only way they could get to him was try to get him to walk away from the law of his God. What if the only testament people had or the only thing that they could get with us is not our corruption, is not the way we live our life, not the way we speak to people, not the way we run our businesses and our affairs, not the the way we do life. What if people looked in and they just saw a clean slate? They saw people that actually took the following of Jesus so seriously that they chose to apply, apply it with honor and integrity and dignity in the lives that they lived. And they thought the only way we're going to get these people is by asking them to bow their knee to something that's not Jesus who they've declared as Lord. What if we live lives so attractive that all we could be challenged on was the allegiance we had to Jesus? Because when you declare Jesus is Lord, the confrontation comes and your allegiance is set. See, we live in a world right now where the tide is actually starting to turn on people of faith. There are public trials around what we believe to be truth and what we believe to be right and proper. Some of us are confronted with a challenge to our allegiance, knowing that the consequences are beginning to become very real. And in some parts of our world right now, declaring Jesus is Lord can have a significant impact on your career. To declare Jesus is Lord can have a significant impact on your friendship, on your finances, on your business and your cash flow, on the freedoms that you have. But what are you going to do when the only thing they can chase you on is your allegiance to Jesus? I want to bring you back to Jesus in the New Testament now because when we started this whole series, Jesus standing with his disciples and they see something in the prayer life of Jesus that's so attractive that they say to him, Jesus, we get prayer. We've grown up in a culture where prayer is part of what we do. We pray every day. We pray around festivals. We pray morning, noon, and night. We pray around meals. But there's something, Jesus, about the way you pray that compelled those disciples to say to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Over the last eight weeks, we've talked about what that is, but Jesus says, okay, well, I'll teach you to pray. This is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. Jesus invites us to address God as our dad. Hallowed be your name. He invites us to declare the goodness of God, to to worship him with our words, to declare his fame in the earth. He invites us to pray your kingdom come, to bring the completion of his work of restoration and renewal. He invites us to pray your will be done 
where we choose in prayer to take the stance of God, we will trust you even when we don't understand the circumstances that swirl amongst us. He invites us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, let the ministry of heaven become more and more the reality on earth. Give us today our daily bread. Jesus invites us to pray in a way that lives lives of desperation and dependence on the things of God to provide our very need. He teaches us to pray, forgive as we forgive. In other words, God, let us receive your grace and let us show it as we live lives free from the bitterness of unforgiveness. And then last week, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're taught to pray in a way that says, don't let our heart and our lives be overtaken by the things that are destructive to us and destroy our lives, our families, our marriages and our churches. And then when we recite the prayer, what do we say? The last line, let's say it together. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I said to you at the start of this morning, that line doesn't appear in the modern translations of the scripture. Unless you have an original King James Version or a William Tyndale version of the Bible from many years ago, you won't find that line at the end of the Lord's Prayer. So if it's not there, does it really matter? Well, let me just give you a little bit of history lesson. The first time those words appear at the end of the Lord's Prayer is in a little document that was produced in the first century. So right back around the time of the early church called the Didache, spelt like this. And we had a debate around how you are say that, but the, the way of saying it is Didache. Didache. It's part of a document called the Didache, which is also known as the Lord's teaching through the 12 apostles to the nations. And it's an early Christian piece of literature that dates back to the first century. And, and when in it, they teach people how to pray. They just recite the Lord's Prayer. But at the end of it, it says, for yours is the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's the first time that this line appears in the scriptures. And people suggest that it ends up in the early translations of the Bible because it became so prevalent in the practice of the early church in reciting the Lord's Prayer to add this last line that by the time it came for the people that were translating the text and they got to translating the Lord's Prayer, it was so second nature that that's how it ended that it got added in. So it's not part of the original manuscripts, but it was very much a part of early church practice to finish the Lord's Prayer by declaring for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And think of the time of Daniel now, but let me bring you into the New Testament. I want you to think about the timing of this edition. Because most people suggest that it was added in the first century AD. And this little line of the prayer, kingdom, power, and glory, is actually a subversive statement. See, Daniel was confronted with the power and the glory of Babylon. But the first Christians were confronted with the power and the glory of the kingdom of Rome. You see, in Rome, there was a declaration that Caesar was Lord. When Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome. And by the time of his death, Caesar Augustus' stepson, Tiberius, was the emperor of Rome. And Romans had actually deified their Caesar. The Caesar took on godlike qualities. They actually believed little things that, if you're, you love finding all the parallels, but they used to believe things like the Caesars ascended in their death to heaven to sit on the throne. See, Romans had decided that their Caesars 
were God, that their Caesars were Lord. There were temples for worship right out throughout the Roman Empire that declared that the Caesars were Lord. There was language everywhere, inscriptions on buildings that spoke to the story of the Caesars. They talked about Emperor Augustus or Caesar Augustus in words like this. His birth was labelled as the good news or the gospel. He was declared as a saviour for the people who would bring peace on earth. Can you see some similarities in the statement of Jesus? You see, the people of Rome believed that their Caesar was God. And so by the time Jesus gets to his death and Caesar Tiberius is emperor of the Roman Empire, they used to refer to him as Caesar Tiberius, the son of God. And there were coins, you can find ancient coins that actually had that inscription on them. Caesar, divine Augustus, son of God, Tiberius. He was known as the son of God. So when the early Christians prayed the Lord's Prayer and finished by saying, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, it was a rather subversive statement in the shadow of the mighty Roman Empire because in that very line, they make a very powerful declaration. And it's this. Jesus is Lord. Therefore, Caesar is not. And when they declare that the kingdom is yours, they say you've deified the Caesars, but we want to declare that one day Jesus will return as the king. The king has already established his kingdom on earth. He's already confronted and defeated the powers and the authorities of this dark world. He's already defeated the last enemy, which is death. And one day he will return triumphant to sit on his throne and rule. And one day earth will become all in all with Jesus as King and as Lord. And when we pray, all power is yours, we recognize that we don't pray to a powerless God, that we pray to an all-powerful God who can move mountains and can transform and change the human heart. And when we declare all glory is yours, we declare that no one deserves the honor, the worship, or the esteem more than Jesus. The early Christians suffered under the power, the might, and the oppression of the Roman Empire. You read the the history of the early church. They were succumbed to incredible persecution. Parts of it are listed in the pages of the New Testament. Parts of it are listed in the pages of history. The Christians ended up as human torches in the Emperor Nero's garden parties in the early first century. You see, it would have been easy for the early church and for the early Christians to feel overwhelmed and overcome by the kingdom of this world and by the power and the glory of Rome. But every time they prayed the words that Jesus called them to pray, they declared, for yours, Jesus, is the kingdom, and yours, Jesus, is the power, and yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. I get the band to come join me. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because if Jesus is Lord, together with one voice we pray, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You know, it's really easy for us to be overwhelmed by the kingdoms of this world. 
It would have been easy for Daniel to be overwhelmed by the might, the power, and the glory of the kingdom of Babylon. It would have been easy for the early church and the early Christians to have been overwhelmed by the might and the power and the glory of Rome. But when people faithfully declare that Jesus is Lord, they recognize that all kingdoms on earth come and go, but the kingdom of God remains forever. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 16. He says this, In this world you will have trouble. An encouraging statement. It's going to get you ready. I'm going to send you out. In this world you will have trouble. If Jesus was here today, I think he'd say the same thing to us. You want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? You want to declare that Jesus is Lord? Well, let me tell you some truth about that. In this world, you will have trouble. But I love the follow-up. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. When we bow our knee, give our allegiance to King Jesus, we're already on the winning side. We're going to live through time of history where There's going to be a great affront to the Christian faith. There's going to be a great challenge to the Christian faith. It's going to look like everything's going to grow and overwhelm it. People are already declaring that the church is dead, that God is dead. You know what? They also thought that when the Roman Empire was taking no prisoners as it dominated the political and the global landscape. If you go to Rome today, you can go to an ancient ruin somewhere in the city of Rome. They've actually just renovated it. It's the mausoleum of Augustus. It's where Caesar Augustus was buried and where his family, including Tiberius, was buried. And they've just renovated it because it's an ancient relic that historians love to go and look at. And the architecture's quite amazing. The Caesars actually thought a lot of themselves, so they spared no expense in building their own burial chambers. And so you can go and find the place. They actually don't think that the remains of Augustus or any of the Caesars are still there. They actually think they got plundered by robbers and thieves centuries ago. Such is the honour that Caesar Augustus and Tiberius still have on this earth. But you can also go to modern day Jerusalem. And none of us know for sure, but there's a few places that people think is the place where Jesus' body was buried. And you can gaze in at an empty tomb because all that remains is an empty tomb. There's no remains in there. There's no ashes or body to be found because the scripture says that on the third day, Jesus, the one that they crucified, walked free from the clutches of death and was seen by the apostles who declared him at Caesarea Philippi as the Messiah and as the Lord. He was seen by 500 others, the scripture tells us. He shared fish and chips on the beach with his closest. They saw the nail prints in his hands and in his feet. And so we can go and find the relics of the great empires of the past or we can gaze into the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus. Church, I want to encourage us as we finish this series. Let's be people that choose to bow our knee to Jesus as our Lord. And let's together with gusto declare, for yours is the kingdom. His kingdom will know no end. His kingdom will break through one day. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's together declare with gusto that yours is the power. When we pray, church, we don't pray to a powerless God. We pray to the God that defeated the clutches of death. There is no power authority that stands in his way. He is Lord over all. 
And let's declare all glory. Let's align our hearts, the inclination of our hearts be to just lift up through our words, our actions, our deeds, our time, our talents, our treasure, everything that we have to get. Let's just live lives of worship that declare the glory of the good, the loving, the holy, the gracious, the almighty, the sovereign Lord Jesus. Come on, church, let's stand on our feet this morning. We're just going to sing. We're going to sing the song that these guys wrote for this series. And then the, the great chorus line just says, For yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory. They're not just words that we speak. They're words that speak to an inclination of our heart to declare that Jesus is Lord. Come on, let's sing. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.